Amen. Well, we want to take our Bibles this morning and turn to uh, the book of 1 Peter. And I'm in a series of messages on answering life's toughest questions. And what we did, we asked our church, but also the community at large and anyone that was on our website, um, if you had one question to ask God, what would it be? And overwhelmingly, every time you do something like this, uh, the number one question comes out, why does a loving, all-powerful, heavenly Father allow evil and suffering in the world? Now, this is not only a problem for um, skeptics, but also Christians as well sometimes. And just the simple fact uh, that we need to trust God and leave the rest up to Him, that's difficult for us to do. But in the skeptical argument, it sort of goes something like this. <clears throat> if God allows evil and suffering in the world, and He doesn't do anything to stop it, uh, does that mean that God is not all-powerful? I think so, they say. But if God, there's evil and suffering in the world, and God won't do anything about it, well, then how can he be a loving God? And so the logic goes something like this, is that a loving, all-powerful God cannot exist, cannot exist with evil and suffering. Well, is that true? And when you and I get involved in personal pain as well, or pain that involves someone around us, don't we sometimes sort of have those same questions? As I've said before, my friend, uh, they're on vacation. We were taking vacation with some friends of ours, and he was going through all kinds of adversity that year. Uh, he, his, uh, his mother had a stroke, eventually had to go into the um, um, a home and died there. His father was diagnosed with dementia, same year. His wife broke her ankle. He had to be Mr. Mom as well as do his job, and he's just overwhelmed with the responsibilities really of that home and the job tough job he had. And so we're looking at this, and he's thinking, look, I'm a deacon in the church. I'm doing this. I'm doing this for God. I've taught Bible studies, and this is what he does. And he says, I know that God's supposed to be my heavenly father, but I think I treat my kids a lot better than he treats his. Now, you and I may not want to express things that way, and he would never do that in public. But I was someone he could have confidence in, and I've, I've uh, asked his permission to share that, by the way, as long as I don't use his name. And uh, he agreed to that. But doesn't he express sometimes what you and I kind of maybe feel? God, here I am doing all this stuff for you. And at least you may be saying, hey, I'm going to church. I'm doing something. I'm praying. I'm reading the Bible some. And this is what happens to me. And we, we fail to understand what is going through life. And we know that there's evil and suffering in the world. I mean, six, what, six million Jews died during the Holocaust. What about that? What about the 2,600 people that died during the World Trade Center um, bombing, if you want to call it a bombing, with planes? And what about the other little simple things that are more individualistic? How do you get over, how does a pastor get over running over his own, backing up the car and running over his own two-year-old child because the child wanted to see daddy one last time before he left for work? How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile with a, a lady, another true story, standing at the curb, not paying attention to what she was doing, thinking about so many other things the way you and I have done so many times before. Her little girl right beside her looks up and says, Mommy, can I go now? Sure, she says. Yes. Just irritated. Yes. Little girl lets go of the hand, takes off out in the middle of the traffic, and immediately a car hits her, is killed. How, how does some person get over that kind of thing? So we know 
that there's evil. We know there's a darkness. We know there's a suffering in the world. And so we ask ourselves, how can a loving God who is all-powerful allow such a thing? Well, this morning I, I realize that you have a right to be uh, questioning. You have a right to be frustrated. And I also know that intellectual arguments never really satisfy an emotional need. And when pain becomes very personal to us, it, it's not an intellectual thing anymore. It's an emotional thing. Why me, God? Why is this happening to me? But I do want to go over some intellectual arguments because I think that those things give us a basis for going on in the future and to find out what suffering and evil is not about as well as what it's about. So we're going to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And here's how I want to handle this message. First of all, I want to ask the, the just simple question, the questions that haunt us. Three basic questions came out from your questions. I'll share that with you. Secondly, what about the answer that can help us? Two things. Number one, the questions that haunt us, and the very first one is how can God and evil coexist? Well, let's look at verse 3 and see the frustration of the, P, the, the, Peter, uh, the people that Peter was writing to. I'll get that right. There's a lot of P's in there. Um, Peter Piper picked a peck of, I need to practice that a little bit more. Verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You say, well, look, <clears throat> I'm a Christian. There are Christians that Peter's writing to. They know this. We bank on this. We believe this. Fine, I'm saved. But what about the sufferings right now? The people in Peter's day were going through a myriad of sufferings. And yet Peter was warning them. One of the reasons why he wrote the book, he says, look, I know you're suffering now, but that's nothing to compare to what's going to come later. Peter had a word from the Lord that great persecution was coming, and he was right. Nero was, a, was appointed, elected, whatever, Caesar, and he began to declare war on the Christians, blame them for burning down Rome, and eventually would, would arrest them and put them in hot wax and use them to light his gardens. Such persecution, such torture. If God was a loving Heavenly Father that was all-powerful, why didn't he intervene and do something about this pointless suffering? Well, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We've talked about the reward of God. In order to please God, you must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Part of that reward's in heaven. Okay, you say, I've got that, but what about this life? Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, you think, oh, I agree with that too. I am protected. I'm protected against a lot of evil. I'm protected. My salvation is protected. But what about the trials? Verse 6, in this we, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Well, there it is. A myriad or multicolored trials. Many different types of trials in life. So what about that? Well, how can God and evil coexist? Well, Peter, well, again, dealing with all the adversity, and, and here's, here's the argument I'm going to give you this morning, very quick and simple, because I've got to get through this part of the message, and that is this. Even if you don't believe in God, if you're a skeptic this morning, you still have problems uh, 
re reconcile evil and suffering in the world. You still have that. In fact, you have more difficulty. Why is that? Well, because what you're saying is something is bad in the world. You admit that. There's evil and suffering in the world. There is. Now, not everybody's willing to admit that. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, the apologist and author, um, was in Oxford University talking to some students, lecturing them, and he talked to many of them afterwards, and he asked them the question, if I took a baby and cut it up into little pieces, would that be something you would describe as evil? And after they talked about it a little while, they said, no, it's not evil. Why isn't it evil? Well, if we were to say it's evil, we'd be passing a moral judgment, and there is no such thing as evil or good in the world. Now, this is the intellectual argument people make a lot of times. But how in the world, in fact, <clears throat> Richard Dawkins has said that it's not about evil, it's not about suffering, it's just all in your DNA, and you've got to dance with it. Can you imagine telling a young mother who just lost her, her child, you just got to dance with that? You know, you just got to dance. It's just all in the DNA. What about someone who's been molested as a child? And maybe they're being molested even now. Oh, you just got to dance with it. Somebody in their DNA is just all about that. How can you explain evil and sufferings in the world just basically about DNA? You cannot. And most people, if they're honest, would say there is a moral evil in the world. Admitting that, the intellectual knows he's admitting to, to God being existing, an existing God. How do you say that, Pastor? Well, it's like this. If you have a moral evil, then contrast to that, you have to have a moral good. Otherwise, how do you know it's evil if you, unless you know what good, unless you have some sort of definition about good? Well, if there's a moral evil or a moral good, there has to be a moral law. There has to be something that says, this is good, this is evil. If there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. Now, I realize that does not explain an all-powerful, all-loving God. But to admit that there's evil in the world, you have admitted there must be a supreme being in the world. I gave the illustration last week about the blind men and the elephant and how uh, atheists would say, well, or uh, skeptics would say, well, you know, everybody's religion has value. It's just like the blind men going to the elephant, one rubbing the, um, the feet or the legs of the elephant and say, oh, an elephant is like, um, is, is like a tree. And another blind man rubbing the side of the elephant and saying, oh, the elephant... It's like a wall. And a maybe a third blind man just looking at the trunk. Oh, an elephant's like a snake. The point to the skeptic is no one has, no one has a, a market on the whole religion because none of us can see the big picture. And I said last week, as one uh, far smarter than I have brought, has brought out, that you, um, in that illustration, the illustration is invalid. And the reason it's invalid is that the person telling the story has to say, I see the whole elephant. And no human being sees all religions. No human being sees all the truth in the world. Nobody does. The point here is that God does. God has all knowledge. And so he's the only one that sees the whole elephant. He's the only one that sees the whole truth. He's the only one that sees all religions and knows what's right and knows what's wrong. He is the moral law giver. When we look at this, we still ask ourselves the question, yeah, but... It doesn't explain a biblical God. Where does the evil come from? Why did God allow such a thing? Well, let me just say, evil is not a thing. Evil's a lack. Evil is compared to darkness in the Bible. And what do you do when you have a room full of dark, or just dark room? You cut off the light from the room. 
You shut the door, you, you put towels under the door, whatever, you, and you have a, a sealed room cut off from the light. Darkness is a world in which the light of Christ is cut off from that section of the world or that mind. There's darkness there. There's evil. There's a void that's created there of goodness, and it's evil. It's wrong stuff. Why do we have that? Because we have choice. We have a free will. All the way back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, it says this, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, or in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, I just read that verse for one reason, and that is to say, God says, look, I'm putting you in the garden. Adam, Eve, you've got a choice. Don't eat of this free tree because you're going to know good and evil, and they did. And the same day you, you eat it, you're going to die, and they did spiritually. They died. And he says, so don't eat that, but I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to give you a choice. Adam made the wrong choice. Now, the skeptic would say, well, why didn't God just make a world because he could do anything he wants to do? if he really exists, why didn't he make a, a world where you could only make the good choice? Well, because that in itself takes away free will. You have a moral law, a moral law giver, and the moral law giver says, this is right and this is wrong. You have a choice in what you're going to do, and sooner or later, you're going to make the wrong choice. What God is saying here in the Scripture, and you can see this all the way through the cross and even beyond it, and that is this that God desires a loving relationship with you. The reason he created Adam and Eve is to have a loving relationship with this couple and then a loving relationship with all mankind. Love demands free will. Who, who would say here today, well, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, I've got to be married to this guy or got to be married to this girl, whatever. My parents arranged it, whatever. I don't know how in the world in other cultures they would they would do such a thing because they, they may be more successful in not getting a divorce, but are they really loving one another? It's a voluntary thing. See, love's, love's kind of voluntary. How would you like it if your wife came up to you guys and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to continue to be married to you because I'm committed? You say, what? Yeah, I don't love you. In fact, man, I really try to avoid you at all costs, but you want to take another business trip? Go ahead. You know, glad to have you gone, but I'm committed. I'm just committed. That's no compliment at all. But she's given a choice, and he's given a choice. And when the choice is made that you love someone else, that's what, where the reward comes from. So you and I are in a loving relationship with God because of choice. Now, what happened? Adam did make the wrong choice, and because of that, the sin nature has been imputed or put in to every single human being that ever, has ever been born from Adam. That means everybody. And you say, well, I'm being punished for Adam's sins. No, you're not, because sooner or later, all of us, it may have taken a year, it may have taken 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, all of us here would have made a wrong decision because we're given a choice to do that. And because of that, sin entered the world, and so it's like buttoning up a shirt. You start off with the wrong button, all the shirt's going to be off. And all the world has been off. There's evil and suffering in the world, and the curse of sin has been passed down. Now, with this, evil produces suffering in the world. Evil and suffering go hand in hand. Sin and suffering are together. You don't have one without having the other. Sin enters into the world, and so selfishness enters into the world. 
You, get, you break up your home because of selfishness. You want what you want when you want it. doesn't matter what anybody else wants. Of the pride, I'm going to do what I have to do to get ahead, run over who I have to run over to get ahead because you have to be successful. The terrorism involved, they're a, a matter of being in a false religion. And so they have terror involved. We talked about that last week. You can, get, you can, get the, you can go online actually and watch that for absolutely free. Free's good, right? How many of you like free? Amen. All right, everybody likes free. Well, <clears throat> it's my sermon, so you get what you pay for, what can I say? But anyway, you can go online and watch that. And then as you look at this, over and over and over again, we can see if you were to look at every single thing that we do wrong, it comes back to the same things, pride and selfishness. One of the two, if not both. And you say, what about natural evil? What about the hurricanes? What about the earthquakes? Well, all I know is nothing of that sort happened before Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. And so you ask the question, yeah, but you know, Pastor, what really bothers me is just a pointless suffering. Earthquake happens, 19, mid-1900s, mid 1900s, 1980s. Earthquake happens, a boy gets buried beneath the rubble, the firemen cannot rescue him for 11 days, and finally he dies. Why that kind of pointless, pointless suffering? Why couldn't he just go quick? It's just pointless. Now, the assumption is this. If I don't see the point, there must not be a point. If I can't see, if I think it's pointless, God must think it's pointless as well. You look at China. 1948, every Christian missionary has to move out of China. We thought we've lost the entire nation. There's no way we'll ever infiltrate that again. Communism is just going to take it over. And that's exactly what happened. What we didn't realize in 1948, when we came out of there, we, we kept trying to go hard and hard and harder and harder at trying to reach the people, but they were indoctrinated into their own religion, a religion they'd been grown up believing. It was hard, like, like even the Muslim faith today, it's hard to, to pull someone else in and help them see something different. But when the communists came through, they didn't try to just win somebody over. They killed people. And so over a generation time, all those religions were almost wiped out. And the only thing that people were believing was communism. So when we went back in, what we found out when China's borders were opened up a little bit to the rest of the world, we found out that this, these little bitty churches around that where people were rejecting the gospel and you spent all this time, all this time reading one or two people to the Lord, it had flourished so much that hundreds of thousands of people were meeting in house churches all over China. What had happened was this pointless, pointless suffering had a point. And the point was communism wiped out the other religions and they saw how empty communism was because there is no God in communism and they were trying to latch on to the truth. They were trying for the first time in their life with a new generation coming along, they were trying to find the truth. I read this past week again about the butterfly effect. It's believed by some scientists the reason we have hurricanes is because an overactive butterfly is flapping its wings somewhere over in West Africa. So that's crazy. I don't know. Probably is. But the point is, something that's happening across the world 
is affecting us today. Uh, William Lane Craig tells a story about watching um, a movie, and uh, in this movie, Sliding Doors, the whole movie was about this lady missing a subway train. In the first scene, she gets actually on the subway, and her life turns out one way, just because she got on the train. It was horrible, just horrible. Everything was happening to her, one thing right after another. In the next scene, she missed the train. She got right up to it and it closed its door, just barely missed it. And her life took on a whole different route altogether. Now, at the end of the movie, you realize, you realize then that in the scene where she got on the train, her life in the beginning was really bad. One thing bad happened to another, but she came out better in the end because of it. In the scene where she missed the train, things were better at first, but she died a premature death. Pointless? Just because of one fictitious story, but a person <clears throat> that missed a train, a subway train, versus getting on the subway train changed her whole life. See, God is using things in our life. It's not, it's not pointless to God. Even the Holocaust, I, I don't know, one writer said, you never know, 1948, Israel became a nation without the sentiment that we had toward Israel because of the Holocaust, that nation may have never formed. And that is a sign, one of the signs of the second coming of Christ. So God has a design in everything. So you ask the question then, okay, why doesn't God stop suffering now? Let me say something uh, real quickly about this situation here. I think if you thought about it, you would realize there's a lot more good in the world than there is bad. Otherwise, everybody just commits suicide. But we ask the question, okay, God has suffering now, but why doesn't God stop it? Now, what did I just say? Suffering and sin go hand in hand. For God to stop the suffering, he'd have to stop the sin and, and, and evil. For God to stop the sin, he'd have to stop us. And since we have a free will, he would have to eradicate mankind, you and I, from the face of the earth in order to stop sin. And that's the only way at this point that he's going to be stopping suffering. And we're not ready for that. We're not ready even for God to say, oh, well, just, why doesn't God just intervene and say you don't have a free will anymore? You know what I've discovered? I've discovered in life that everyone is willing for you to lose your free will, but they don't want to lose their own free will. Think about it. Yeah, all these evil people in the world, you know, take away their free will. But I still want my free will. I want to still be able to make choices in life. The third question that's often haunting us, why do Christians suffer? I mean, after all, we're, chi we're children of God. And these intellectual arguments just don't help me when I'm going through the darkness. Listen to what a psalmist said. In this Psalm 88, there's only two psalms that I think about in the psalms that I know about that end up with no hope. Psalm 39, Psalm 88. And I'll just tell you that so you can avoid those psalms. <laughs> no, but Psalm 88, written by Haman, who wrote a lot of the psalms. He didn't know what was happening to him but because of all the stuff that he was going through in life. God helped him to pen something, inspired him to pen something that we're reading even today. But he said this in Psalm 88, O Lord, the God of my salvation, I've cried out 
By day and the night before you, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. You have put me in the lowest pit. In the darkness, in the dark depths, my acquaintances are in darkness. Now, this word at the end, the acquaintances are in darkness, is not a very good translation. What it's saying there is, darkness is my friend. Darkness, God, gives me more comfort than you give me. And he ends the psalm that way. Sleep. I believe what probably what he was talking about. Sleep brings me more comfort than you can even bring me. Here was a man that's going through darkness in his life. And so what happens to us? Why do we go through this stuff? Let me give you four quick reasons, and I'm going to name them all. Number one, we live in a sinful world. And as I said before, nothing happens to a lost person without Christ. A person without Christ, it cannot happen to you. We live in a suffering world. We're affected by the drunk driver who runs into us and, and damages our car or even takes a life from in our car. We didn't do anything, but we're affected by it. Number two, we're affected by our own sin. Sometimes we make those wrong decisions. And sometimes because we make those wrong decisions, we have to go through the circumstances of life that teaches us a lesson, but also this is just life. This is not heaven. When, when you do the crime, you got to kind of do the time. It just happens. And so we search our heart and, and seek forgiveness. Number three, for personal growth. Let me look down here in verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that, there's a, there's a reason here, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter realizes as the church is going through this, it's purifying the church. It's making them closer to Christ. It's maturing them. James 1 that JT quoted just a few moments ago, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and it says that let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Maybe mature. So the trials in our life bring us about maturity. In fact, real quickly, there's two things that God uses to bring maturity, Christian maturity, and emotional maturity in our life. Number one is inner pressure. We get that from the Bible and from the Holy Spirit using the Bible in our life. We read it. We say, God, I need to change here. There's no question about it. There it is right there. I, need to, I heard this sermon. I need to do something different. So I changed my life. I'm going to pray, God, that you would do something in my life to give me the grace to change it. The other way he uses is adversity, trials because we don't always listen to the Lord. There needs to be trials in our life in order to bring about emotional maturity as well as spiritual maturity. And Haman was recognizing that. We can read the rest of his Psalms and, and, and know that God had done a great work in his life. And fourthly, it points us to Christ, points us to the Lord. Our college pastor here, my son, Brandon, um, going to be leaving in January to plant a church in North Carolina, and I hope you'll be praying for him. But he was in college at Liberty University and planned to, uh, he had his all, whole life. I won't get into detail, but he had his whole life pretty much mapped out. And all in like one or two weeks, everything just fell apart. Everything just fell apart. 
and he was just at ground zero. You know, he's a business major. Now he, he doesn't want to do business and necessarily. And what, God, what am I going to do in my life? And he was soul searching and he started getting into the Bible and reading the Bible so much that his friends were kind of getting worried about it. I mean, I don't know how you get worried about somebody that reading the Bible too much, unless you're not reading it very much. I don't know. But anyway, he was reading the Bible a lot. And he called me one night. He said, I've been seeking for answers. And he says, I think I found one. What do you think? What do you think about this? I've been seeking for the blessing of God in my life. And I think I've discovered that the greatest blessing of all is Jesus Christ himself. We're drawn close to him. That's what God wants to do through our trials, to keep us pointed back. The fire, it says in verse 7, the fire brings us back. It burns us just enough to, to bring us back, get our attention, to bring us back to the founder of our faith. And so we think, you're, still, you're sitting there, you're still angry. You know, this has helped you some, but not, not a lot. It's just intellectual arguments. It helps the skeptic, but maybe not the believer who's saying, I'm wrestling, I'm right in the middle of something that's breaking my heart. What kind of comfort can we get? Secondly, the answer that helps us. Peter says three things. Look to the past, look to the future, and look within the heart. Number one, look at the past. Read with me again in verse 7. So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. By fire. Now, we've already read verses 3 through 5, and verse 3 talks about Jesus dying, he being risen from the dead to obtain an inheritance. It's all in the past. He's looking at something in the past as a present blessing in our life. And he goes through and he uses an, an analogy here about fire. An illustration about fire being in a furnace. You put gold into the furnace, and the impurities rise to the top. You scrape it off, then you put it back into the fire, bake it again, and more infirmities rise up and, and, and weakness, and you brush this off until it becomes pure gold. You know, when I think about a fiery furnace, I think about an Old Testament story. Some of you may have learned this in vacation Bible school or something about Meshach. Who else? Shadrach and Abednego. And you know what happened? Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and he said, everybody's got to bow down to my statue. They refused to do that, and he threw them in, all three guys, into a fiery furnace. Now he warned them beforehand, but basically they said, hey, look, God can rescue us, and if, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. Even if he doesn't, even if it's our time to go, it's our time to go. He threw them into the furnace, and the guards looked in and said, king, I thought you threw... Three men in the furnace, but I see four, and one of them looks like a son of God. And when they came out of the furnace without anything on their clothes being even singed, burned at all, only three came out. Jesus stayed in the furnace. When he died on the cross, he took our fire for us. The Bible teaches us that fire is a symbol of judgment. He took our judgment upon the cross. What Haman was feeling in the depths, he says, the dark places, in the depths I found myself, in the dark places where he was, where he felt like he was, Jesus actually was. In the garden he said, Lord, if this cup of wrath can be taken from me, I pray that you'd do so, but not my will, but your will be done. And God did not take away. His heavenly Father 
did not take away that. And Jesus suffered. He said, well, a lot of people have suffered. Look at the book of martyrs. And a lot of people suffered. No one ever suffered like Jesus suffered. And, and you've heard that before. Why is that true? Because he not only suffered uh, the loss of life, not only suffered pain, but the darkness of truly being alone for the first time in his eternal existence. He lost something that was the most precious thing to him. As Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how much pain he took on for you. I had a dream uh, several years ago, and uh, I don't even know if I even shared this with my wife, but I, was, I read a story about another guy sort of having a similar dream. I said, wow, yeah, I had that too, and boy, it really scared me to death. I had a dream one night that I lost, I can't tell you how, but you know, you wake up sometimes, you don't know what happened, you just know what happened, don't know the detail, and I had a dream that I lost every single person in my family. My wife, my three children, when they were still with us, and I woke up, and I felt that was so real that I woke up almost in tears. And I was so scared that I just reached over and made sure Pam was there, and I still didn't hardly believe it. That's how real the dream was. I got up, and I started to go upstairs, and I just thought, well, it's just, it's just a dream. It's just a dream. I felt the loss of something that I had that was so precious. I felt the loss. But then when I realized I didn't lose it, it was all the more better. Jesus lost, but then when he was resurrected from the dead, he regained. Now, I just say this to say this to you. Please listen up very carefully. I don't know why you're going through suffering in your life. I don't know that for sure. But I do know this. I do know you're not going through it because God does not love you. You're not going through it because God didn't care. Jesus came and died on the cross, and he cried out again, it is finished. My God, my God, you've forsaken me. I don't feel you anymore. I'm in the dark places, the darkest place I could ever be as I'm hanging on this cross. He did that for you. There's no way that we can ever say, God, I'm going through this because you don't care. And I don't know about you, but the one thing I want to know when I'm going through a trial, God, are you with me? God, do you still love me? God, do you still care about me? Do you care about my life? Not just in eternity, but right now. And the answer is a resounding yes. Because Jesus paid the price for your sin. And he suffered like no man has ever suffered for your sin, for the evil in your life, in order to give you life. We see, first of all, we look in the past and we're grateful for it, but then we look into the future. In verses 3 and 4, it talks about a living hope through the resurrection to what? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. It's a living hope, <clears throat> a faith, assurance. What do we say that hope is? It's like faith. It's the assurance of something hoped for, the evidence of something that you can't see. Hebrews 11.1. Hope is saying, God, I'm looking forward to something. I know it's coming. I know I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm keeping my eyes on the prize. A living hope to obtain an inheritance. 
Jesus went to the cross because he had the same kind of promise that you have. He had a living hope promise. What was that living hope? That living hope was you. You were his hope. You were in faith. He was dying on the cross so you can have life and have it for eternity. Lastly, the thing that will comfort us is not only looking behind and looking ahead, but lastly, looking within the heart. In verse 10, verse 8, it says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressibly full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the end. But he says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, of the grace, underline that word, the grace that would come to you, make careful searches, inquiries in the prophets. What was going to happen? What is happening? What did just happen? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. But boy, verse 12 is, is a jewel. I was revealed to them, it was revealed to them, that they were not serving themselves but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things, notice this, things into which angels long to look. This word long comes actually from a Greek word meaning to lust. The angels are pictured with a passionate desire as they look, and it's like a staring it's like a longing to understand, to see it. What was it? It was the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel that they had never experienced themselves. When Satan fell in heaven and one-third of the angels were cast out, they had no, they had no grace. They, they did not experience that kind of mercy. And they long for it. They look at it and say, can I say that? I can't hardly believe it. Here's sinful mankind cursing God, going away from God, making arguments and anger against the existence of God. Have you ever wondered that? Why people write book after book after book after book saying that God does not exist. Every time you talk to them about it, they get mad about it. Why are they so angry? Maybe it's because it's not that they don't believe in a God, but God, they feel, has let them down. But these angels just longing to look. The very grace that we experience every day. When you and I come before the throne of God, when we know that God has a purpose, it's not random, it's not pointless, but God, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest, not of works, lest any person should boast, but it says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. When he looks at our life and says, I can use you in a powerful way, even through the evil and suffering. In fact, because we have evil and suffering, he says, I've got a job for you. Maybe we wouldn't be needed. We wouldn't be needed if there wasn't the pain and suffering, but we are. We're needed by mankind, and God has placed that burden within each and every Christian's heart. Let's pray together. In the quietness of this moment, imagine today if you could see what God is doing in your life. As a matter of fact, 
let's just imagine just for a moment you would be like Job and God finally comes to Job and says to him basically it's not your job to understand what's going on it's just your job to follow and trust me would you do that today would you say God I don't understand and the pain that I'm going through now seems to be unbearable but it doesn't have to be there are actually people living in the world today with all the pain and suffering they're going through still giving glory to God you can be one of those and if this morning you've never received Christ into your heart know that he exists know that you can trust him know that he loves you with all of his heart and he died on the cross for you and if you would like to receive him into your heart right now I ask you to pray this prayer with me silently right now as I pray aloud it goes like this Lord Jesus thank you for loving me thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins I open up the door of my heart I ask you to come in please forgive me of all my sin make me the person that you want me to be help me to trust you help me to rely on you knowing that you love me in Jesus name amen would you look this way many of you uh, in fact Chris told you about this little card um, just a few moments ago as a welcome card but it's also a communication card to us and if you prayed that prayer to receive Christ it says on the back my decision today and you've already filled out the front I trust that your name please put your name and I know that we have people make decisions every week and some of you leave your name off or you leave maybe your first name we want to get in touch with you we want to help you grow in the Lord We're not putting you on the spot just help you and so put your information on the front and put that little check on the card make sure it gets in the offering plate when it's passed here in just a few moments and maybe you're here, sitting here today and say I'd like to make a decision now I don't want to wait I don't want to put a card just merely in the offering plate I want to talk to someone we're going to give you that opportunity right now as these gentlemen are coming forward and uh, pastors in our church you come during this invitational time and just put your hand in theirs and say I prayed that prayer with the pastor this morning if you'd like to come and pray in the altar you've got burdens on your heart we're going to give you a few moments here this morning just to bring them to the altar and say, God, help me, help me, help me to trust you even in the midst of pain and suffering. And right now as we stand together, the band's going to lead us right now. You come.